You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. I'm Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today is Dino Tanik. Dino has been in product for over 10 years, starting his career in software engineering and shifting into product through a frustration of building products that he didn't think were good ideas. He is now the co-founder and CPO of Hello Monday, a coaching platform and a vision to help everyone reach their full potential in a job that they love. We're talking about aligning product and business strategy and why it's important. But before we do, Dino, do you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself and saying hello? Absolutely. Hi, Georgia, and hello to all your listeners. Um, firstly, thank you so much for having me on your on your podcast. Um, it's a real privilege to to be here and speak to your audience today. Um, I've I've had you know quite a journey in my product career, and over that time, I've learned a lot from others, and you know their generosity and their mentorship has benefited me a lot. So I hope I can impart some of my learnings and mistakes that I've made over the career to your to your listeners today. Um, you mentioned in your intro that I got into product through frustrations of, of building things that I didn't think were great ideas as a software engineer. Um, um, and that's that's true to a, large, to a large extent, actually. like There were a lot of things I built that either never shipped or I thought they weren't particularly amazing ideas to begin with. So I got into product through that because um, I thought actually that I could do a better job. But um, I've been very humbled in that assumption <laughs> since, let's just say, um, and it's there's been a lot of learning and it's actually really, really challenging. Um, product, I think, is, is quite a hard discipline and it's really hard um, to do well. But um, it's, been an, it's been a really interesting journey and I feel like... Um, I feel like it's such a broad field. Every time I feel like I master one aspect of it, then another five open up, right? And that's kind of been part of my passion behind Hello Monday and and creating that product. It's really been from a need to continuously develop myself and also help my team um, grow and develop, particularly in growth um, growth stage businesses where that can be quite hard. So. Um, most of my career has been in startups and growth stage businesses. So I started my product career at freelancer.com, which most of your listeners have probably heard about. And then I was a, I was a head of product at High Pages, which is Australia's largest marketplace. And they IPO'd sort of a couple of years ago. And that was a really great journey. Then I was chief product officer at a company called OpenAgent, again, a marketplace um, in the real estate sort of prop tech space. And now I'm a CPO and co-founder of Hello Monday. And what I'm really excited to talk about today is how product managers can create and deliver the best product in their niche. And so, you know, why it's important to always align the business strategy and the product strategy. And I guess answering that question of how do you know 
if you have a strategy worth executing. So can you, um, do you want to start by telling us what makes a good business strategy? Because I don't know if anyone would have had that. (laughs) Definitely. Um, So this is a three hour podcast, right? To be released in parts. Um, Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's a, it's a long answer, but maybe before we go there, I think what's important to, to your listeners to hear or, or my experiences as to why it's important to product. Why is good business strategy important to product? Um, and, you know, at the risk of standing obvious, a strategy is what actually drives execution. Um, it really, pro- if a great strategy provides an awesome platform for you and your team to execute from. So then you're able to empower individuals. Individuals are able to make decisions and really deliver a great product. Um, without that, things can um things can get a little bit tricky. So I've um, I've often seen teams kind of set out on something that really needed a bit more thinking upfront, right? And particularly in, in product-led or technology companies, um, I would say that the business strategy is really indistinguishable from the product strategy. The product strategy is really just a finer articulation of the business strategy. Mm-hmm. And if you if a business hasn't created a great, strategy or if a product team hasn't created a great strategy, um, things downstream in terms of execution can become quite challenging. So um, I'm sure, and it's a constant feedback cycle from execution to strategy, but really setting up the platform for success upfront can significantly increase your chances of success. And if a a business doesn't have a great strategy, um, there's generally what you'll perceive is a reluctance from senior leadership to overcommit into business into product initiatives or business initiatives more broadly. And you know, that can manifest itself in in many, in many different ways. And I'm sure your listeners would identify with, you know, with some of those things like, you know, being pulled onto a to work on a strategically really important project, then just to halfway through to be pulled onto another strategically really important project, right? Or you might have felt like me, where, you know, um, you've been asked to work on something and you're like, you're thinking to yourself, geez, this is really the thing we're going to go after. Like this is this is the best idea kind of that we have. And um, I would also say culturally, it's very important to have a good strategy. Now, that might sound strange, but I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes some of the issues we might perceive culturally within the organization, let's say kind of in a broad term, often can stem from strategy. And what do I mean by that? So without conviction around the strategy, there's, again, like a, there's a lack of desire from the leadership to overcommit. And what that might uh, look like is, is, you know, what I mentioned, sort of a continuously changing strategy, or you might have senior leaders in the detail of uh, initiatives or, you know, products that are being worked on. Um, and the reason for that is because they need unfiltered information, right, to be able to make the next decision. But that can be quite... It's not very empowering for a team, right? Um, to have to have a strategy that's continuously changing, or you know, senior leadership that's sort of in the detail um, of it. So it can be if your product leader it can be very difficult to empower your team, um, for example, in that environment. And if you're a product manager, it can be very difficult to get that empowerment and to also get that um, to be able to make decisions on your product. Um, effectively. So I think it's really important to kind of recognize when that's happening and what some of those symptoms are, because I often see people sort of trying to um, 
address, say, cultural problems, some of those problems of empowerment and so forth with, say, process or kind of at the lower level, where actually the real issue might be further up, say, strategy, right? Um, so I think that's why it's really important for product. Um, in addition to obviously giving yourself the best chance of successfully executing on, on your product initiatives, I think that goes without saying. Um, so then what makes a great product strategy? Um, that's really hard, <laughs> actually. And it's very specific to each business and each industry. Um, but there are some things that I've learned that I think are hallmarks of, of a good strategy or will help individuals create a good strategy. I think every business has a strategy, right? But I think very few businesses have a good strategy in my experience. Um, <clears throat> generally, a business has a vision statement, like we'll be number one in vertical X. And that's generally expressed in a, in a much more um, altruistic way. <laughs> like, you know, we'll empower everyone on their financial well-being or something. But really what that means is we might be number one in, in vertical X. How we're going to do it is we'll put the customer at the center of everything. And then the big initiative is, you know, AI or big data or I don't know if blockchain still, still a hot thing, but, you know, something in there. And it kind of stops there. And then the ne next layer you have is like your quarterly plan, right? So there's this real like middle layer missing. So there's a vision and a lot, most businesses have, I think, a really good vision and mission. But then generally what I see or what I often see is in this is missing layer and then there's the six-month roadmap or the quarterly plan. And the thing that's missing is really the, the strategy. Um, and it's important to get that right. It's, it's important to spend the time. It's important to get that right. And there's kind of in terms of thinking about this, what I wanted to impart on your listeners or the things that I've really learned or discovered or, or done through mistakes in my career is really three things that I think can immensely help with strategy. Again, it's very, very broad, but I think three things are the ones where I've failed and kind of learned through mistakes. The first one is really to have the right inputs into your strategy. Um, and that the first one there is really around your market. Um, so this, there are three, I think, key inputs to a strategy, your customer, the customer problems, um, your market, and then your core competencies. I think the one that's often not well understood is the market, actually. Mm -hmm. The second thing is really around your customer problems, understanding like what I call the economics of customer problems. So do you have a customer problem worth solving, actually? And can you do it ideally in a sustainable way? I create a moat around it. And then the third one, there's a framework I really like, which is McKinsey's Three Horizon Framework, which I think is a great way to frame a strategy and communicate a strategy. A lot of product managers are excellent at execution, Get, you know, a lot of them, I think, lack the visionary skills that a founder would would have. Do you think you can teach someone to be more visionary? And would that then hopefully make them a little bit more strategic in what they're doing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know if visionary, like, it's, you know, it's sort of like defining love, I think, like what that really <laughs> means to all of us, um, potentially. Uh, I think... You know, there's this sort of a little. It's a little bit cliched, but there's this like, at least when I started a product back in my back in my day, um, there was this like a little bit cliched um, Venn diagram of describing what a product manager does, right? And there's just like three intersecting circles of, um, you know, UX or customer, tech, and then business. Yeah. Right. 
And, you know, the, the, the product manager is sort of an intersection of those and is, is kind of an expert in all, is in all three. And I, I think that's very true, actually. Um, so really understanding your customer really, really well is important. Understanding how to build a great product and great customer experience. Understanding, you know, your teams and your company's kind of circle of competence. So what, like, what, what are your strengths? Um, what are you really good at? And then, you know, the business side in, in inverted commas, I think what that refers to is really your market, your competition, understanding the competitive dynamics uh, within that, like supply chain margins, um, distribution channels, and so forth. And I think if you're able to understand those three things really well, I think by nature, you will be a visionary, right, for, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, because where that comes from is a deep understanding of your space and your product and your customer, and like, like we said. Um, and I think, sure, some people are naturally more creative than others, right? So they might think of kind of wild ideas more easily. But if you're a product manager that understands those things really, really well, like for your customer, for your industry, for your product, I think naturally you'll be you'll be a visionary. You'll be perceived as a visionary within your company, within your industry. And I think when you look at a lot of, you know, uh, let's say product or technology leaders out there, a, a lot of what their visionary sense comes from is just deep understanding of that space. When you look at, you know, the Elon Musk of the world, the, Steve Jobs's, the, I don't know, Jeff Bezos's, um, they've spent decades in that space. They've spent decades building those businesses. Um, and that's, you know, that large networks and, and that's where a lot of that comes from. So can you teach someone to be visionary? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, <laughs> again, but I think, I think if you can focus on those things and really invest in those things, I think... Um, I, th- I think anyone anyone can get there. And the one actually that I see underinvested in um, Georgia is the business side. I think a lot of PMs, I think, could do more to understand really their market and their industry. I think a, like a lot's been written about how to do better customer research, how to distill that better, how to understand that um, better. There's a lot written about how to execute well, you know, technologies, technology s- stacks. And I think... I think PMs generally are pretty good at that, but the one I think that's less spoken about and is underinvested in is really the business side of that. Yeah, and I've discussed that a couple of times on the podcast before. You know, does a product manager need to have an understanding of the market that they're working in? You see a lot of product managers moving around quite a bit from, you know, retail, finance, insurance, yeah. you know, real estate. Um, you know, it's, it's got to be hard keeping up to date with those industries and often when I speak to product managers who have worked in finance they tend to want to stay in finance because they've gained all of that understanding and knowledge which there's a lot of compliance and regulation or they're bored of that and want to get away from it and work (laughs) different so I guess yeah having a deep understanding of the market would definitely help the product managers but do you think um how do you think that they could use that knowledge and information to support the overall business strategy? Yeah, I mean that's 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 really really good question, and I, I think a very astute observation. So, you know, just starting with the market, right? Firstly, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about that? And I think markets are like icebergs. Um, like in a way, it's 
it's easy to understand the kind of fundamental dynamics of a market pretty easily, right? Like, like you could look at Uber and go, just as an example, and go, uh, like I get the economics in that industry pretty well, right? But actually, the devil's really under the surface, right? Um, again, using that iceberg analogy, right? To understand distribution channels, margins, direct, indirect competitors, technology considerations, um, and the list goes on. It's actually really, really hard, and it takes time. So there's a mentor that I have had, and he's a CEO in the renewables industry. He's a, you know, he he has he's a bit of a loose cannon sometimes. So he has statements, but he's he, he's got a lot of experience and he's very astute. And, you know, he would say, you need 10 years to understand an industry. Full stop. It's an apprenticeship. You need 10 years to understand an industry. I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I, I think, I think it, it does require time and it does require um, effort. I actually gave a talk on strategy, I think in 2019, it's pre-COVID, so I divide my time in now pre-COVID and post-COVID. Um, and in, I, I was actually intrigued about this question. I was intrigued about the question, what's the average tenure of a PM within an industry? And I actually hired someone on Freelancer. So this stays between us, right? But I hired someone on Freelancer to scrape 150 profiles on LinkedIn of product managers, CPOs, heads of product, and look at the average tenure within an industry of those product professionals. What, what would you, if you had to guess, what would you say the average tenure within an industry? So this isn't company of a, of a product person is, and this data isn't perfect. So people have career breaks and LinkedIn isn't super clean on industries, but, um, or, or categorizing companies within industry. But I, I think, I think the numbers like would be ballpark accurate. So what, what would be your guess? Oh, that's a good question. I would have said probably somewhere around four to five years in an industry. 2.1. 2.1? In 2001 is the answer. I was expecting you to say something higher, not lower. <laughs> industry. Not so this is industry, right? Now, you know, when you look at my experience, like it's all been at marketplaces, but they're different industries, right? From freelancer to high pages. So there's, there is some, you know, continuity there, but it's not, it's not the same industry, right? Yeah. And I think that's quite, you know, that's quite telling now. There's a lot to be said for breadth of experience, right? It is actually also useful to have seen different things, right? Because so, when you go to like business school or you work in McKinsey, they give you different case studies of things, right? Of, sorry, different organizations in different situations because it's useful. It's helpful to draw on that. So, so there, is, there is, you know, something to breadth of experience. And, and again, you can also have experience that's sort of focused on a particular, let's say, mode. Like, so you might be a product manager that's worked in a lot of marketplaces or e-commerce, but across different industries. And there's a lot you can carry across those things as well. But ultimately, especially if you're a head of product or, you know, sort of like a senior role, I think you need to have a really good understanding of the industry that you're operating in, in order to be able to produce a great strategy or, or, or have a product strategy that effectively aligns against the business strategy, right? And <clears throat> knowing the industry is like, like I found, I've, I've underinvested in that actually in my career for the longest time. <laughs> and then, um, but when I kind of recognized it and got around to doing it, because I saw, actually I saw people around me do it. I, I was working with the CEO who was, she was exceptional. 
and she did that really well. And um, but it's when you know it well, it's like a cheat code. Like you know what's working, what's not. You know what competitors have tried. Why, if it's failed, why it's failed. If it's succeeding, why it's succeeding. Uh, what overseas competitors are doing. Um, this opens up potential opportunities for partnerships. Um, you know, investment and exit opportunities. There's just a wealth of information that comes from that that I think is really, really critical to feed into your product strategy, not to mention on how you're going to get your product to market, um, unit economics around it and so forth. And now it's hard, right, because we're all, there's a finite number of hours in any given day, right, and there's a million things to do, right? You've got to talk to your customers, get across that, your team, um, you know, execute on your plan, da, 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 right? Like it's just a never-ending list and it's easy for this thing to drop off, right? To actually go out there and speak to others in your industry and understand. There's a few shortcuts I've found though. So I thought maybe like I'll leave your listeners with that and it might be helpful. Um, it, not all of these may apply to you, but it's say if you're an Australian-based product business or tech business or, you know, regionally focused. Overseas competitors, competitors will generally pretty freely share, I've found. So they're, they're a great, they're great to connect with and a great source of knowledge. Um, and oftentimes the market dynamics are slightly different. So it's, so it's, it's good to understand the nuances as well. Um, investors can be a really good source of knowledge because it's talking to everyone um, in the industry especially investors that have come from that industry. So have an operational background within your industry and then became investors. Um, and then also potential part, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, power customers. So especially in a, in a B2B context, um, power customers tend to use a lot of products and know the space really well. So they're actually also really, really, really good to get across market dynamics. Yeah, nice. Okay. Um, I've talked before about the term mini CEO. Some people love it. Some people hate it. (laughs) (laughs) But if a product manager has the mindset of being a, you know, mini CEO, surely that would motivate them to get a little bit more business visibility and think of the bigger picture. Yep. So that's how I'm thinking of product strategy. You, you know, you can be very, especially in a large organization, you're very siloed on building your product rather than understanding the whole business and what their goals are and what they are setting out to achieve and mission that, you know. So, yeah, do you think that that would help shift mindset if they were encouraged to think more like a CEO? I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, the mini the mini CEO. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's um, it's an interesting way. It's an interesting way I think to describe a PM. Um, I think in many ways it's true actually. Um, because at least for your product or your squad or you know set of products, wh- wh- wherever you sit and whatever you're responsible for, really ultimately, like you are responsible for driving for driving that. So making sure that, you know, um, all the things that need to happen within your product and within that execution actually happen. And naturally, you kind of tend to fill the gaps um, within that. So so that's very much, you know, how a CEO would be thinking about an organization as well and in really this wide breadth of responsibility and ultimately ensuring success um, of the overall product, not just sort of individual 
you know, pieces of work. In some ways, it's also unfair because I think sometimes the big decisions might not sit with you. Yeah. Like ultimately kind of what to invest in, you know, the size of your team, things like that. So, um, but if you have that mindset, I think it's, it is the right mindset to have of the mini CEO of really being responsible in charge of, of your product because it means you'll think about it strategically and you, you'll drive it forward. And, you know, I touched on the McKinsey Three Horizon framework and that's really helped me and I think would help other product managers and individuals both frame their strategy but also communicate their strategy. Um, the McKinsey like, Three Horizon framework uh, uh, um, splits investments into three different horizons, right? So the horizon one is core. So you're really your core business and your core product. Horizon two are new businesses. And then horizon three is really like breakout innovation or disruptive innovation. Um, I, I assume most of your listeners have have heard of it or, or are exposure to it. If, if not, it's just a Google search away, but I don't want to go into the theory of it too much. What I really like, kind of term part is why I think it's a good, it's a really good framework. Um, and I think everyone should be using it. And if your company isn't using it, I'd strongly encourage you to use it. Um, I find it a great way to map customer problems to the horizons of investment, right? Because sometimes we can, customer problems and ideas can come from everywhere and they're all on sort of different investment horizons, and it can be hard to know where do these things sit and where do I put them, right? And that from a kind of product thinking and product strategy perspective, I think it's really useful. And then the bonus is that it generally maps really well to your business strategy. Because what a business thinks about is like, here's what we're doing in our core and how we're strengthening that and you know, solving customer problems within that. Here's how we're, then Horizon 2, here's how we're taking our existing strengths and core competencies and then using those to create entirely new businesses. And then here's how we're reimagining our industry and reimagining our future, i.e. a breakout innovation. And I find that like really great way to think about strategy and, and it's then also provides a great way to communicate that strategy to your team because um, it goes, here's what we're doing in our core, here's how we're measuring that, and then here's how we're leveraging our core to create new opportunities, new business lines, solve entirely new customer problems. And then here's how we're taking those and leveraging them into breakout innovation. Uh, because otherwise, what I've seen can happen is that, like, you know, core initiatives get mixed with sort of... Um, disruptive innovation ideas and there's other ideas for like new businesses we could start and all becomes a bit of a mishmash but this provides like a really nice way to think about it and there's maybe just a couple of tips on that as well that I've again you won't find through googling but I've I've learned through bitter mistakes is that <clears throat> really from each each horizon should leverage should be leveraged to help the next horizon succeed. So horizon two and horizon three, they're, they're inherently risky. They're new ideas. They might not succeed. Um, they're inherently risky um, endeavors. So what you want to be doing as much as possible is de-risking that and really underwriting that. And the way to do it, particularly within the kind of thinking of that framework, is to really think about 
what are the core competencies, but not just that, also audience and distribution from, say, Horizon 1 that will help you move into Horizon 2, right? So say to take an example of Hello Monday, and again, not to plug Hello Monday, but our Horizon 1, we started in career navigation. So, you know, using coaches and learning and our platform to help people navigate either um, kind of internal mobility within their organization or find new work, right? Then we've taken that. So our, our coaching marketplace, our existing customer base, um, as well as the platform and taken that to create a product that can help people now develop more broadly um, and, and support their growth. Um, so that's an example of kind of really effectively leveraging your horizon one into horizon two. Maybe to like outline where we haven't done that so well. So when I was at Freelancer, for example, and I think most people be familiar with Freelancer, so their core is um, you know, hiring a, a freelancer talent online. So it's marketplace for hiring freelancers. Um, and then what we thought, because a lot of the freelancers are actually in the developing world um, and they don't have great finance infrastructure, or at least at the time I was at freelancer, it was like 10 years ago now. Um, a lot of them didn't have bank accounts. So, so just receiving payments and getting paid was actually quite difficult. Um, and then we thought, well, actually, we could provide financial services for people, for these freelancers, for people in the developing world. So that would be our horizon too. But we ultimately, it's a great idea, right? Yeah. Awesome. But we ultimately failed at that because like whilst we had the audience, we had no expertise in providing financial services in places like India and Bangladesh. And it was very, very difficult to get it off the ground. And ultimately, you know, we paused that investment and, and decided to focus somewhere else. So that's the that's the sort of um, really being conscious that you're leveraging your current strengths, not just strengths, but also again audience and distribution to really help new initiatives succeed across Horizon two or three. Because otherwise, what you might find yourself is really incubating three startups, and that's not where you want to be. I mean, depends on the size of your organization and, and how much you're able to afford to invest, but it's not where you want to be. Um, and entrepreneurs actually, you know, whilst I think on the surface they look like risk takers and um, they're actually the opposite. Um, a lot of like entrepreneur founders and entrepreneurial CEOs, in that sense, they're actually quite the opposite because they're constantly trying to reduce risk and un underwrite the success of products of initiatives and so forth. Mm, very interesting. I'm going to go and research more of this McKinsey horizon. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's pretty simple, but like, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend it. Um, there's maybe a couple more things on that actually that people might find interesting. I think the biggest problem I've also seen with companies is don't have a viable horizon too. I think there's often this misconception that companies aren't thinking kind of creatively enough to create sort of disruptive innovation. It's actually, like I think, the challenge is for businesses to get out of their core. So you've got, you had this one thing that's successful. How do you layer onto that, create a wider audience and distribution in order to give your breakout innovation a chance of success? Yeah. It's actually Horizon 2, I think, where um, uh, uh, it, it can be challenging or, or it often falls over. 
like I like I just gave in the previous example. Yeah. And so do you think it's easier for product managers to get business visibility in a startup? Or do you think already established businesses like an Afterpay or a Canva that have already gone through that growth, you know, they know who they are? Is it, you know, for me, I would think that it's harder to get business strategy visibility there because you, you know, especially if you're a young junior product manager or someone that's new in the business, yeah, yeah. you've not got that exposure really. Whereas a startup, you're directly working with the founders and CEOs. What would your opinion be? Yeah, it's a really good question. Firstly, I didn't realize Afterpay counts as an established business now. I don't know what um, companies well, I guess like Commonwealth Bank would say to <laughs> No, no, absolutely. And they've had incredible growth. Actually, one of our customers. So they're ah. really, really, really great business. Um, sorry, back to your question. Um, look, I think, I think talent is rewarded anyway. And I think if you're... If you're good at what you do and you really care and you drive, I think you will get exposure, excuse me, to strategy anyway. Um, having said that, though, I, th- I think you're right. I think it is much easier in startups and growth stage businesses. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is that uh, strategy is really part of the e- everyday activities in a startup. Like if, if you know, I think the startup word, again, also is sort of, thrown around a little bit, but um, there's this actually great talk by a guy called Mike, Mark Roberge, and he was the former CRO of HubSpot um, at, on how to scale SaaS businesses. But there's a great framework he uses in there, which is like the stages of a company um, or a startup. And it, it, the first stage is product market fit. So really like validating your customer problem and and, and your solution that actually solves that problem. Then if you do that successfully, so really the first stage is customer success, then you go into the second stage, which is uh, go-to-market, um, go-to-market fit. And really what you're looking at there is can you sell your product profitably? So you're looking at, you're proving out the unit economics of your business. And if you kind of tick that off, then you go into scale. So then you're ready really to scale your your business and your start and your startup, um, and so a startup will be at one of those stages. And generally, you're kind of moving back and forth between them. But um, naturally, you're testing and iterating. Like the business is testing and iterating, not just you know you and product or whatever it might be. It's actually the whole business is you know centered around product market fit. Then the entire business is centered around go to market fit. Um, and so forth. So I think that gives you naturally more exposure to strategy, to business, um, uh, to understanding your customer, understanding your market that I don't think you would get in, at least not to that level in a much larger organization, because naturally things, you know, um, I want to say more siloed, more divided, right? You've got a smaller focused area because it's, it's much, much, much bigger. Um, yeah, so I do think startup will give you bigger exposure to that. Um, there, there can be some challenges with that or downsides, like in, in my experience, um, because it's constantly iterating and moving through these phases quite quickly, things can sometimes feel a little bit, I don't know, the right word is chaotic, um, you know, fast paced. Um, and 
yeah, that can be that can be challenging at times, you know, because the, the strategy might be changing. Um, uh, even you might have a leadership team that maybe hasn't done it before, so they themselves are learning, uh, you know, and then constantly iterating through that and getting empowerment can be challenging. But again, it depends on the size of the startup. I think if it's a smaller startup, it's actually like it's the perfect kind of place. If it's sort of around twenty people, because my experience is kind of everyone knows everyone, so you're naturally across the strategy and things get communicated really well, even in informal way. Once a, I don't know if you call a startup anymore, but once a company hits about 50 people, that's when you need real sort of processes and proper formal communication methods. So, you know, there's a, there's a bit of nuance there, but yeah, I would, I would definitely say that if that's your goal to really like accelerate your learning in that, I think you're best off doing it at a startup or growth stage business. And that kind of leads me on to my next question then is how can business owners, founders, leaders ensure that the business strategy is talked about and conveyed in a clear message? And I also making sure that people understand it, I think is all well and good communicating something, but actually making sure that your, your team understand what you're talking about is important as well. Do you have any tips there? Yeah, I mean spend a lot of time on it do it well um i'm a big believer in in strategy and and conveying that message in an effective way so storytelling um and really thinking about it from a storytelling perspective again the thing i mentioned is that i think the mckinsey through horizon framework can really help companies individuals frame that so it gives you a nice framework to tell your story from and then you can bring the customer in there and and, and so forth. Um, there's probably another sort of angle to that question, sort of when I hear you ask it, which is how can product managers ensure that their ideas, you know, are listened to and also contribute and help drive the overall strategy? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I touched on earlier and, um, is that I think I think most product managers are really really good at understanding core customer problems. I think what sometimes maybe isn't done as well, or maybe I'll talk personally. What in the past I haven't done maybe as well is really understanding the economics of those customer problems. So once you understand a customer problem, we really got to like understand is is that problem worth solving? I.e. will People pay for it, and then can you do it in a defensible way? Because if your competitor can just easily copy, your larger competitor can just easily copy that or your feature on someone else's platform, it might not be a kind of scalable business model. Um, and that really comes through. Maybe I'll just I'll just touch on that a little bit because it's, it's sort of high level and, and nebulous. It's um, it's really taking the customer problems that you see within the customer journey that, that you're um, working on or looking after or where your product uh, is operating. And then really just breaking them down, again, based on those economics. And what I like to look at there is something called revenue pools, right? So how much, how much revenue, how much money is being spent on that already out there in ways that maybe are inefficient, right? So again, just to kind of like quickly use an example of like Hello Monday, so we're in the development space, right? We help 
companies and individuals develop. Um, and um, when you look at that, it's actually there's, there's a raft of problems there. Firstly, it's generally quite expensive. It's difficult for companies to procure that and make it available. It's very time consuming. Um, it's a lot of development is ineffective. Um, it gets low engagement. And on the other side, a lot of people are not quite sure where they want to take their career or have really, really clear career goals, right? So there's a raft of problems, right? And you can take all of those and go, okay, um, what are the economics of these customer problems, right? Like what are the revenue pools within that, right? So at a very, very high level, you could look at okay, how much is actually spent by companies on development annually. And it might shock you to hear, but it's 240 billion US a year. Um, and interestingly, 80% of that doesn't produce an impact, but that's a story for another time. That's maybe another podcast episode you can get me back onto. But, but then you take that 240 billion and then you break it down further, right? And this, this is just like a pyramid. You can just keep breaking it down, keep breaking it down, right? So, and I'll just do kind of one layer here because in the interest of time, right? But the majority of, of that spend is in what's called structured learning. So I think courses, think like LinkedIn Learning, go one. Um, that has an extremely low engagement rate when put into organizations and it has very, very low recall um, or impact on individuals. But it's it's a highly concentrated industry. There's sort of a handful of players that really provide that at scale. Um, and it's about 210 billion is spent on that. On the other side, you've got coaching. So one-on-one coaching, mentoring. There's about 35 billion spent on that. So much smaller revenue pool, but sizable. Uh, but coaching actually is super effective at driving development. Um, but it's expensive or relatively expensive. Um, so companies invest in that much less. So really, when you look at that, it's a large revenue pool. So this is really the hallmarks of what you want, I think, is, is, is a large revenue pool. Ideally, you want a space that's fragmented. Sort of don't want to go up against Amazon and e-commerce at this stage of the game. Um, and you ideally want um, uh, uh, something that is ultimately defensible uh, for your organization and that you can you can execute well on. And that's what we're focusing on, right? But then you can take that 35 billion in coaching and really break that down further. So there's a billion spent in Australia and on these different types of coaching and so and so on and so forth. But <clears throat> I'll pause there because that we could talk about that for another half hour. But um, really. If, if you're a PM that's able then to take that, so you go, okay, I've spoken to customers, I've understood their core, pro, their core needs and I've understood the problems of how that's delivered today and how that's procured today. And then I've looked at, you know, the economics of these customer problems and I understand which, which of these markets are highly fragmented, which are not, what the size of revenue pools are, what are potential margins, and you package that up. Like you'll get a seat at the strategy table, right? Um, people will listen because you've got the same framing as the business strategy, right? You, it's not just surfacing like a set of customer problems. That's a starting point, right? But you really got to frame that as a as an overall product strategy, and then ultimately as a business strategy. A lot to digest and a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. How can people and mine. with you and reach out if they have any questions? 
Yeah, so so uh, probably easiest way is to just find me on LinkedIn. So Dino Talik. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, but I'm I'm less active than Elon Musk on on Twitter. <laughs> let's just say, or yeah, you can reach out to me through Hello Monday. And lastly, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers? Um, one piece of advice is, I, I think product product is a really really challenging space um it's such a broad discipline and you're thrown constant challenges and in in my own career it's actually been really really challenging um at times um and then, to be honest like there's been moments where i've thought you know is this thing even worth it and in hindsight it's been absolutely worth it and then some um so what i've learned through that is actually to take the long view of things um, and you know, uh, Einstein said that compounding is the eighth wonder of the world, right? And it does wonders for investments and mathematics, but I actually think it applies to all areas of life. I think it applies to knowledge acquisition. It applies to career. It applies to your family. And I think what I would say to your listeners and what I think about every day is just how each little bit of knowledge or each challenge that I'm facing today um, will compound and add up to be something really worthwhile over a long over a long period of time. And I think that's the way to think probably about your career and your product and, and kind of anything else you're doing. There's a quote from Charlie Munger that, are, that I really like. It's um, I, I remind myself of that quite often. It's really simple. It's not kind of that insightful but he said um if you just wet, if you just get up every morning um and suit up you'll be surprised how well life works out and he's i think 99 now <laughs> so I, I think he knows a thing or two and that's i think i think that's just you know keep doing those small incremental learnings and improvements and over a very long period of time that'll add up to a lot you won't see it tomorrow you won't see it next week you won't see it next quarter but you know have patience get up in the morning suit up people don't suit up probably anymore but charlie munger did back in the day and i think i think you know your career and life will, will work out i think that's such that's an amazing piece of advice and my mum has always said the same thing get up get dressed get out the door <laughs> um yeah it's yeah, it's tricky because friends. yeah, I think we as humans, you know, just to kind of end on that is we haven't really evolved to have a long term mind frame. No. Like we, you know, our forefathers who who are we're kind of genetically identical to them, we're hunters and gatherers. So it was all about surviving today, you know, plucking enough berries, killing enough antelope or whatever to survive. Whereas so we don't, it's it's hard for us to imagine that long-term and compound mindset, but just reminding yourself of every day, I think is really, really powerful. Very powerful. Dino, thank you again. You've been absolutely awesome. Thank you, Georgia. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.